Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Howdy and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. It is a pleasure to have you with us as we explore the last week's rugby and coaching content. I've rounded up another three excellent coaches this week. So gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you're from and your current role. Hi, I'm Paul Paul Shepherd. uh, Shep. I work at a secondary school in Somerset, King Alfred's Academy. And my current coaching roles vary significantly from school to county and a few other bits along the way uh i'm alex field i live in prince Edward island canada i currently coach our girls youth provincial program and i'm head coach with a local high school uh colonel gray high school i do the girls 15s team hi phil i'm russ bolton uh based in buckinghamshire in england and i'm currently the rugby specialist at Magdalen college school in oxford Thank you very much, gents. Absolute pleasure to have you. Rugby specialist, Russ, that's a very... Did you ask for that title? Is that... I like no, that. it's actually called the rugby professional, but I feel that's really misleading about the quality <laughs> of my play, so I just relabeled it, but cheers for that, mate. Nice. That's strong. I like it. I like it. Cool. So, little cowboy, uh, little cowboy joke for you. Two cowboys were riding through a canyon. From far off, they heard the sound of drumming. One turns to the other and says, don't like the sound of those drums. And a distant voice calls out, He's not our regular drummer. <laughs> I can add in the laughter. It's not, a problem. it's not a problem. If you're finding us for the first time, welcome. If you are returning, thank you. And we hope you enjoy the roundup. I'll run through the format and then we'll get into things. We will be discussing and reviewing some of the content that's taken place over the last week. The guests will give you a brief overview of their learnings from some of the content they've engaged with. And then we'll discuss and question how we might make it applicable to our environments. At the end, there'll be a quick rundown of what the guys are looking forward to in the coming week. Links to all the content we discuss can be found in the blurb accompanying the podcast. This week, I've added a list of some other high-quality regular podcasts. If you haven't already, please do have a look. Right, Shep, we're coming to you first up. What is it you're going to be discussing? Um, So I looked at a talent equation podcast. Um, uh, It's called Developing Coaches Through the Cut, Bleed and Bandage Method. Um, and it was Mark Kearns, Dr. Ed Clo- uh, Lachlan, Clothlin, uh, and Stu Armstrong. Um, and I'm f- fueling my own biases a little bit here. Um, there was a, um, so culture is a huge buzzword at the moment in, in rugby particularly and in, in a number of sports. And I, I believe that everywhere currently has a culture, regardless of whether it's um, bottom, middle or top, you know, in terms of the performance pyramid, everywhere will tell you they have a culture. Now, culture for me is something that um, is, is driven by a group of senior players or the, or the coach. Um, and it's not always a positive thing, but everybody sees it as a positive thing. It's that buzzword at the moment. Um, and it is mentioned on the podcast um, that there are tons of coaches, and, and indeed we're three of them, um, that are listening to and, um, and sort of taking note on, on how to develop themselves as a coach. Um, but not having the ability to practice it uh, and so effectively just topping up and topping up and topping up and topping up and end up with all these fantastic ideas 
that they've got no idea how they work until they get the chance to be in front of those boys, girls, or whoever um, when when the lockdown lifts. And I think you know a little bit of knowledge is is often a dangerous thing. Um, so so for me, um, the premise and obviously this this cut bleed bandage is is as a coach, um, you deliver your session or your you know you you have your your culture so to speak. Um, and you have somebody that you trust implicitly that, that isn't going to be one of those sugar coating guys that just pats you on the bum and, and says, Oh yeah, it's really good chefs. That was great. Um, that, that sort of the, the cut part of it is somebody who, who challenges you and, and will question you. Um, and I've heard mentioned in, in previous pods, um, a couple of weeks ago, they were talking about the, um, the crusaders and the crusaders have a, a, a mantra I'm, I'm led to believe about coffee. So if, if a coach wants to go out and they're going to deliver some bad news to another coach, um, they say invite them out for a coffee. And you can't refuse a coffee, but you also you get the heads up that actually we're going to talk, we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation about some practice or something that they've seen. Um, however, there is that mutual respect there. And I've got a little ditty that's sort of, again, that's from the pod about, uh, about why it needs to be like that. Um, the, the bleed bit is obviously your reflection on, on their criticism or their, their challenge or their questioning. Um, and then the bandage side of it is it's mega important that there's that trust and that respect element because that bandage part of it needs to come from, uh, from both of you working together. It, it's you coming up with the next steps or you coming up with the, the, the problem solver for, for that perhaps that individual session. Now, I think it was Stu Armstrong was talking about it was interesting as well because I, I look at it in, in perhaps a different different way. But he talked about some feedback he'd had as a hockey coach. He'd been working on a, on a pathway um, pathway event uh, and was coach educated. Um, uh, the coach educator didn't have any relationship with him. Um, watched him do a bit of coaching, made some notes, and then two or three days later sent him an email. Uh, and the email wasn't well received from 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 Stu. Um, and, um, so he bit back a little bit and shut and clipped some stuff up and, and what have you. Now, my point is, is that actually that's quite a defensive way of doing it and actually not just taking on what that person's opinion is. However, um, he then sort of found himself, he, he'd, he'd been cut, he bled, but he didn't have the bandage bit because there wasn't that relationship to, to, to sort of, to reconcile that, um, and, and, and not, you know, Phil and I have worked together before, and I think in the in the groups that we've worked together, and there's been that quite forthright discussion. Um, but there's also been that element of bandage where where everything has, has come back together. So, you know, there's there needs to be, in my opinion, you know, the, the culture is is relatively easy. He says um, to create as long as you've got good people. And if you've got good people around you, and good people don't aren't just those ones, as I've already said, that pat you on the bum and, and tell you you're great. They're those people that aren't afraid and, and you know that their criticism, if you will, comes from a place of, of love and development rather than a, I'm trying to knock you down a peg or two. Um, so, you know, that's, that was my findings and actually how they're sort of, how it's going to influence my practice, I suppose, um, is perhaps I'm going to try and do a bit more of that with, with the, the staff I work with. I'm, I'm not necessarily, we're not a rugby school. Um, I do a lot of the rugby, but there are other guys that are willing to help and, and so on. And we sort of perform various roles. Um, and perhaps there's a, there's a little bit of that that needs to take place in, in my setting, although it is you know, comprehensive. So it's, it's mass participation rather than elite pathway. Um, so that's, yeah, that's me.
Mate, superb. Absolutely love that. I genuinely have about five million questions floating around <laughs> my head. Um, I, I guess first one I'm going to go with, how, how do you think we find more people in more environments to be able to do that, that kind of bleed and bandage bit? Coach education is never going to be perfect. It's never going to be the way we would like it to be. But I, I do worry, and I've definitely experienced this in, in kind of both ends of the spectrum. I've probably had really, really good support at times. And then other times it, it can feel incredibly lonely and you've got no one to challenge you and you genuinely don't know if what you're doing is, is you know, even half decent or not. So what, what would your thoughts be on where would you kind of, blue sky thinking, call it whatever you want, where would you go? How would you start to try and put more of that in place in a, an envir- in, yeah, any environment I think there's a lot to be said for, for, for cross for cross code work and from my point of view as a rugby coach if someone from football or someone from even something as maybe even an individual sport so something like swimming comes in and has a look and says okay what and questions those things because I think as, as rugby coaches and people that that perhaps know a little bit I think we're always in danger of just carrying on doing what we've always done um, because it works um, yes, we we reinvent a few bits, but I think actually to have a have criticism or critique from from somebody who isn't a specialist, but so therefore perhaps doesn't understand all the things that you're trying to get across, it it sort of makes you check your your own delivery, I guess, and, and your own understanding and so on. Someone told me this years ago that that the best coach education or, or mentoring comes from people outside of your sport because there's no agenda from them to progress within your sport that there's always potentially an underlying trust issue. If, if somebody's in the same sport as you, because you might be going for the same role or, or at some point or, or something like mm. that. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. Definitely. And, and I know yeah. lots of people, sorry, go on. sorry, I was just going to say like, how do you, how do you see it working in that more kind of amateur rugby environment? So obviously in a, in a school setting, you've got a captive audience, like you want them to, have a relationship with you, but they also kind of have to listen to you. But in an amateur rugby environment, you're not necessarily going to get that opportunity to take them for a coffee the Wednesday or Thursday before the next training session. How, how do you think that would work? Well, every club's got a grand, fantastic culture, so uh, so it's a, it's one of those things that will be great. Won't it? No, I think I think that the, the the I don't necessarily know about the that side of it. My concern side of it, I suppose, is that. The, the, this sort of mentoring role will come from the under t- towards the under 11s from the under 12s coach and this is why we did it this way and this is what worked for us and I uh, my concern with everything like that is it's just becomes replication and and we don't actually then look at improving it it's just that we did that last year and it worked or sorry I say Phil did that last year and it worked and Alex did it this year and it's working so next year I'm going to do the same thing um and I think perhaps I think we need I think I think there needs to become not necessarily um, but people need to be accountable for for what what they're doing I get it everyone's a volunteer and so on but there needs to be some sort sort of accountability no matter how small for for being for for being part of that culture if you will Um, and, and I think that it sort of I, I've, I've been one of those coaches and I know I could, again, probably we could all reel off a few coaches that are completely closed off to any sort of ideas and think that actually their way is the way. Um, 
and, and, and as I say, I've, I've come from a position or come from a place where when I started coaching, I thought that, you know, having a massive playbook was the way forward. And I've learned very, very quickly, and you know, working with people like Phil and, and other guys that it's, it's not about that. It's about a bit, it's, it's actually, that's really easy to produce a playbook. It's more difficult to, to, to do the rest of it. So I haven't got a perfect answer for you, Russ, I'm afraid, but it's, uh, it, it, that's what, that's my view on it. I kind of think. Chip, I'm wondering, um, in terms of culture, do you think culture right now is struggling with how to deal with feedback? I think we do a great job of taking feedback when it's positive, but the critical side of it, um, it's, what are your thoughts on how do we teach other coaches or players to embrace feedback as opposed to want to avoid it? Ooh, that. I, I think that's a great question, and I, and I, and I, do, um, I do agree that there's, you know, the culture is – well, I'll accept your praise. Absolutely. You know, if you tell me how good I am, I'll remember that for ages. If you tell me how, what, how I can improve, I will immediately give you a, a reason that, oh, it didn't work that way because, or so-and-so wasn't here to, for that to work. It would have worked if you did, or if you see it next week, it'll be different. Or, you know, it, I think we are very, I think human nature, isn't it? We, we are a bit, a bit um, protective of each of ourselves and our own ego. Um, about you know how those things look and, and and how they feel I suppose um the the only sort of I I once sent out a um uh, a survey to a group of um, under 16s that I was coaching and I was expecting that you know we'd had a really good season um county wise and, and I was expecting some fantastic feedback and I had some horrific feedback and I and that was that really it was that was my sort of eureka moment that actually and I was I was quite annoyed by the feedback, and I went and sought a, a friend of, of of ours, Phil and I, um, sought sought him out because I didn't know at the time that he was going to do the cut bleed bandage bit with me. But actually, reflecting on what I've listened to this week and, and so on, it's exactly what happened. You know, he, his his viewpoint was, what, "What did you want the feedback for?" Well, I wanted it to you know I wanted it to boost my ego. Well, actually, that's not what the feedback's about. The feedback is about making you better, and that's that's there, and that's what they did. Because actually, you're not going to do those things next time, are you? Well, no, I'm not. Or I'm going to try and improve on. I, I, I quite like that idea, but obviously, it didn't come across that way, and I'm not going to try and improve on that moving forward. So I think, yeah, I think we negativity is something that we we all react perhaps badly to. Alex, do you think it's a case of understanding how you receive feedback? So, it, I mean, it took me years to work this out, and I'm not saying it will work for everyone or it's it's the solution, but I I actually just started to recognise what my process was for dealing with that so because i would do a lot of planning and i would think i guess obsessively about what i'm going to do if someone then said that was crap however constructively it was framed i'm like whoa what do you mean i've got this wrong and and automatically i would be defensive and i'd argue the toss and and i'd kind of kick back and but give me a day give me two days definitely give me a week I'm going, yeah, they had some really good points. And, and then it's built in and it's fed through and, and the, then it drives change. And I, I will front up and I genuinely hold my hand up now when people are going to do conversations like that. And I'm like, I will be defensive here because of this. But I can guarantee you at some stage, however long it will be, I will come back to because it's resonate, you know, resonated with me and, and it's been processed and stuff. So do you think it's a self-awareness piece of, of just recognizing you are like that or whatever that is for you? I think 
Uh, part of it would be that, you know, when we plan something to the nth degree, we put ourselves into it. So when I get feedback on a practice, I feel like I'm getting feedback on myself. So I think you're right in the sense of the first instinct is going to be you're insulting me, you're criticizing me, not my plan, not my practice. And so I think that the first challenge a lot of times feedback is disassociating between the task or the product in yourself. And I think once you do that and you said it, Phil, you're, you're able to vocalize, okay, I'm going to get upset, then I'm going to go and think about it, and then I'm going to talk back. So, I mean, when you talk with the, the cut, bleed, bandage, it might be, you know, and then ointment or something, that fourth phase where you need that time to digest. Um, and so it's finding that way of, I personally, when I get feedback, I love getting it written first and then having time to digest it, think about it, be angry silently, and then go, okay, yeah, you're right. Now I'd like, can you explain it more to me? Because I, I think for me, feedback is learning. And I think when we talk about players who we really, really love coaching, I think it's the ones that embrace feedback, good or bad, and can take it and can adapt to it. I think the ones who are very talented and don't take feedback are probably the most frustrated. I think that the... the one of the things that um, is, is mentioned on the pod is that that, like you've said there, there are there's there's no nobody is the same. So the way that I turn that around might be overnight. It, but that sort of the, the the cut phase is obviously very very quick, you know, because it happens. It's it's like it's like ripping the bandage off, I suppose. And you know, if we're going to carry on with the medical um, metaphors and so on, but that 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 bleeding phase might take two days it might take two weeks it's it's gonna it's gonna be a, a, a long time and that bandage phase might take even longer it's it that it's the, the initial cut is, is quick because actually you're it, and you might need to go back to that cut and pick at it a, a, a little bit to try and okay so what did you mean by that and it might be that you come across as aggressive as perhaps that is but you then get a little bit more the cut gets a little bit bigger perhaps you get a little bit more um time to bleed and sort of manage that um, moving forward I think they're really good points really strong I love the fact uh, yeah there's a great point around disassociating yourself as the person it's professional feedback on the content arguably so yeah that's a great point cool uh, yeah Alex we're going to stay with you so if you would like to uh, explain which uh, which content you've been looking at this week Hey, uh, so I went with the Tuesday training with England Rugby that it was use it or lose it, embedding learning in your practice. And this was with Professor Richard Cheatham. Um, and so I really like this one because it was about the how. Um, and it's one of those ones, I'm sure if I touched on all the key takeaways, I'd be here for an hour. Um, but the, I'm going to give three. The first was he talked a lot about shared practice and how shared practice, when we do something together, it creates shared meaning. And so his idea was it was collaboration between the coach uh, and the player. And the ultimate goal is for self-regulation. Um, and so he's, one of the things that uh, Richard talked about was, at the end of it, you want a player to be able to say, I now know what I need to do to get better. Um, and it's about mastery. And I really like this idea because for the longest time, I always struggled with the concept of mastery. And then I read somewhere this idea that mastery isn't about being perfect. It's about able to recognize your mistakes and knowing how to fix them. And so I think this idea of collaboration to lead towards self-regulation uh, is massively important. Um, and they brought up the fact of right now we're seeing a lot more self-regulation from players with them being at home by themselves, not being relied on the coach um, to develop. And so I think this is a huge point. Um, and it's something that, 
uh, I hope we don't lose when we uh, go back to getting on the field. Um, and one, the, the next was, so if the coach is now sort of going to be, you know, collaborating instead of just sort of being the lead, uh, he presented this idea of uh, helping players to navigate the route um, and reading cues along the way. And he presented this idea of maps um, and that it's now the coach's job to be beside the player instead of in front of them and help them to learn how to read cues uh, to discover and explore. And he really hit home the idea of it's the importance of discovery and embracing the struggle. Um, and this idea that the deeper the struggle, the deeper the meaning. Um, and he acknowledged the fact that, you know, we need to do a better job of creating decision-rich environments. Um, so getting away from simply those robotic drills to getting us into situations where we need to be able to make decisions. Um, one thing that I found with this when he talked about cues is I, I, is I reflect on the fact of does he, he, they didn't really talk about how to develop the ability to read the right cues. Even if you look at a map, um, you get the idea that um, there's loads of things on the map. You're not going to look at it all. So how do we begin to sort of distinguish what is important for us and what isn't? Um, but they acknowledge the fact that uh, you might go down the wrong road and mistakes are okay and that's part of the learning process. It's part of that experience. Or, and this is even more important, you might go down a new road, that idea of creativity. And so the, the whole notion here is being beside the player. Um, I actually, the thing I like about this and being beside it is that it takes away that notion of the coach being the source of information and allowing the player to um, discover on their own. And I read an article and it talked about this notion of timely or on-demand information. And I think that's what the coaches begin to become is that we look at uh, being there as players discover and when they're about to get on and the term is at their edge of competence, we provide them that little bit of information they need to be successful. And then we step back and let them do their own thing and discover more. And so I really like this notion of the map and discovering and, dis and exploring and seeing where you want to go as an individual player or potentially as a team. Um, so one of the big things was embedding. And the, one of the questions they asked is, how do we know they know? So how do we, as coaches, walk away and say, yeah, they got it, or no, they didn't. And I think this is an important part as a coach for reflection. And so they gave a couple questions here that I really liked and I thought were useful to share. Uh, one was, can you show me what we did last week? So not tell me, can you show me? Um, and so what this does is it allows, it allows the coach and the players to reconnect from the last week's uh, learning or the last practice learning and really hit home, do they understand? Can they show me what it was? Um, it also allows you to be as a coach to realize if they have no clue, there's, there's potentially two reasons for this. One, they didn't get it. Or two, maybe they're not doing the work on their own time um, to sort of develop those skills, which goes back to self-regulation. The other question was, uh, what can you do now that you couldn't do last week? And I think this is, this is important because it allows uh, players to see their own growth and to discover that, yeah, they are progressing and they are finding success in their own little way. And they really hit home as part of this is we need to do a better job of making learning memorable so that we can retrieve it when we need it. So what is the language that we're using so they remember it? And one of the things they brought up was naming games. So we don't have to stand there for five minutes and explain it again. And for me, 
this was something that was old hat because I used to coach basketball and this was in basketball. This is normal. We just be like, Hey, we're doing Duke drill. Everyone knows what it is. They set up, they go. It's 30 seconds. We're starting. So I don't have to explain it over again, but it's one of those things. It really hits home language to reconnect to learning or having one or two key terms can trigger that memory. So you don't have to explain it over and over again. It was just a really interesting way to make practices more efficient, but also show, are they retaining some of the things that we're doing? So those were, there's plenty more takeaways, but those are probably my big three. Cool, Alex. So sounds like a lot of that, to me, I digest that and take that as, that will come down to a lot of your planning as a coach. So what are the implications for you personally about how you might go and plan a session having been on this webinar? Um, I think some of it would be, and this actually goes back to another uh webinar that I watched with actually Stuart Armstrong and he talked about we sometimes we over plan to the nth degree and when you look at collaboration and that concept of we want to bring the players into it is that I will probably actually plan less now than I did before I'll have a I'll have a framework and a structure of things I want to achieve but I'll probably engage my players more in how are we going to get there? What does that look like? So if we're going to do a mini game, I might not come in with the with the rules. I might say, Kate, we're going to play, you know, touch. You make one rule, you make, your team makes the other, go like that. Or we might play touch. And then if it's getting one side, it's like, hey, your team's down. You make a rule um, that you think will give you an advantage. And we'll play from there. So I think looking at this and that collaboration uh, and making them part of the learning process is something that I took away from this because I think it's going to increase the ability for them to embed uh, their learning more. As it sounds very much like it's sort of a, a teaching side of things, isn't it? You know, I'm sure Russell would agree that you know ultimately what you want is your your players or your students to be able to pass an exam at the end or, or to be able to put these things in practice under pressure in a game. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a lot to sort of lot of crossover there between between perhaps our worlds and and and, and the coaching world. Is there an element as well that we, you use the language of sort of passing an exam? But a match day would be our exam as as rugby players. So how do we then trans? Is there enough transfer in what we're doing in training related to the players on a game day? So actually, here's your end of week exam. Show me what you did in training. It's not just about winning the game, but can we go through those processes? And, and that's what we'll talk about at the end of the game. Yeah. I th that, I think that for me, uh, when they talked about embedding your own learning, and I, and I sort of started thinking back, okay, what am I really taking away from all these webinars? Russ, what you just said is probably one of my biggest takeaways, is what am I doing and how does that transfer to the game? Um, so I think in terms of you know success in the exam, the exam could be – you know, multi-level. It could be, do we win or lose? Or you could have benchmarks that, that you're looking for. You know, we want them, we want to give up less than a try or less than two tries or we want to keep a clean sheet. Or maybe we want to, you know, get 10 tackles past game line or something like that. So you, you, can, you can create other things uh, to sort of say that win or loss aspect um, other than just the result. Um, and this actually came from a book I read, The Double Goal Co Coach by, uh, his name is Jim Thompson. And he talked a lot about this, is that how can you build success and create a winning culture 
even when you're not winning. So that would be one thing to create a different field of exam because I agree, if we're just saying it's an exam, you're probably thinking we either win or we don't. But depending on your age grade or your level, there could be much more that you're looking at. Are we starting to implement those, transfer those things from practice to games? Because sometimes you can have your best game and lose, and sometimes you can have your worst game and win. So, Do you think, as coaches, we maybe uh, plan or obsess too much about players getting bored? So we, we almost move on too quickly. So it's kind of going to go, right, well, this week we're going to do this for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, and then we're going to go to something else. So next week the session will look different again, and we're always trying to find new... I wonder whether we're doing us and our players a disservice by not actually allowing them a progressive opportunity over a longer period of time in terms of weeks, I guess, to actually show improvement. So my, my thought coming into whatever preseason looks like is maybe for 20 minutes every Tuesday we play the same game and we film the first one. And yes, some of the rules will change and they'll progress and the levels will get harder and we'll just we'll find different ways to keep it engaging. But in six weeks' time, we'll be able to go, well, we started you know, down here and now actually doing the same game. I can show you six weeks' worth of progression and learning and development and actually have that as a visual, whereas... I definitely know previously I'm just like, yeah, this we're going to do this this week and this this week. And it's just, and because we don't repeat it, I'm just not sure the players ever feel like they ever get better at one of the things they're doing. I don't know. I think regardless of your, your coaching level, you're, ever, you're always afraid of chaos, aren't you? And, and, and I suppose one of the, the other sort of factors that are not necessarily at the top end or, or the, the adult level, uh, you've, you've got to take into account are, are parents. So if, you're, if your session is, is chaotic, um, and it doesn't look like there's any sort of structure, but you know, as a coach, there is learning going on. You've got to be brave enough to say, we're going to stick with this. And, or, or, or like, you know, Phil said, no, I don't see any problem with that way either, but you know, sort of throwing 20 minutes in or, or having four weeks of session, uh, four, four weeks of sessions that look the same. So that for the first 20 minutes, you do one game, next 20 minutes, you do the next game. And then, but then you, you can sort of track their progress. And again, you know, like Alex said, by giving those things names or those those conditions games conditioned games names, you can just flow through those, and the kids will be better on week four. But perhaps they're not as bored of it um, as 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 they might have got if it was just all in one session. I think there's an interesting way to look at it in that you know any kind of learning is going to take time to ingrain, and I think sometimes we put pressure on ourselves to go, what realistically a player is going to learn in the full sense of it, within a hour-long, two-hour session, depending how long you've got your kids for or your, your adult school. I think, I, in my experience, to really ingrain things, it's going to take six months to a year's worth of work to really see change. And actually, I don't think you have to frame it as we're learning this. I've always looked at it as, when I've set out my seasons with adult teams, it would be three key themes. And those themes would be, well, actually, what, what do we want our strengths to be by the end? And those will be consistent throughout the season. But Obviously, we'll jump in and out of other things, but it then means as well, I know that I'm getting a year's worth of work that should be coming back to those three key areas. So there should be good learning by the end. And as a coach, it's always quite rewarding when you get to the end of that season. You go, well, I can tick two of those three things off that were really good. And you then go into more of a maintain phase. If you jump in between everything, you're ticking it off. And then we all know you coach something and that might be better that weekend. And then two other things have dropped off. 
So you coach that and that gets a bit better, but the first thing drops off. So it's, I think it's also just about the time it takes to learn and understanding that. I think too, with just the board, the boredom aspect would be usually I, in my experience, boredom occurs for one of two reasons. One, they, the players have lost the meaning to what they're doing. So they don't do that transference. And two, they're not, they're not being challenged anymore. Very rarely have it felt like players get bored of a drill if it's still challenging them and still game relevant. I think when the boredom comes, it's typically because it's either too easy or they have gained enough game experience that it's no longer relevant to helping them develop their transference for game experience. Yeah, I think you're bang on there, 100%. Good stuff. Uh, right, Russ, we're going to come to you. What, uh, what were you looking at? So I was on uh, the Magic Academy on Wednesday with uh, Will Greenwood and Brian Ashton. Um, I feel my points may not be as coherent as the others because by nature, the conversation was fairly meandering. It was brilliant at times as well. So um, to, to sum it up, really, it was uh, Rusty and Fletch showed yeah. some video clips from England age group rugby as well as the uh, New Zealand-England semi-final win. Um, and Basically, Brian and Will had a look and stopped at points and, and made their thoughts. Uh, the first thing to start with was, I didn't know this. I just found it incredible that they grew up on, the, like, they lived on the same street. It, so, And it wasn't just Brian Ashton as a England coach and Will as an England player. Will's dad was England coach and an England player as well. And it's three people of that standing in one street. It's just crazy, isn't it? Um, so I just thought that was a really fun start to it and, and kind of gave you a link to how those guys know each other and how they play off. Um, I'll go through, I re what I really liked about it was that there was, I guess the other two topics that we talked about tonight, would you could label around almost soft, softer skills of the how we coach or create culture. This was a bit more, there was a lot more sort of practical game ideas in there and there were some brilliant sound bites. I think Rusty had a million hashtags coming out after it. So check that out if you want, if you want good one-liners, but I think the things that stood out for me, um, so they talked at times around the depth of attack and actually do we vary how our attackers are standing relative to the gain line, in particular our playmakers. Um, I think younger down the age groups, we potentially, you know, we say depth an awful lot. We have lovely diagonal lines, but how often do we teach players to get comfortable close to the defensive line and maybe limit their movement? Um, and look at those things and, and the opportunities that that can create. Um, so they had positive and negative examples around different games where maybe they'd given too much space to the defence and too much time, or maybe they could have got tighter, uh, you know, ball players. There was one great example in the semi-final where England were pretty much unable to, they should have scored, or in Brian Ashton's opinion, they should have scored on the outside of Brodie Retallick, but because we were playing 20 metres back before we went around them, um, that happened and, and maybe that was all down to structure um, on the structure piece I thought there was a really good comment around if we structure the game too much does that take away the players willingness to scan because they know what is expecting to come so I don't need to look around and, and play off the cuff and I, yeah there's always a balance between structure and, and off the cuff at the moment and I just thought that was an interesting point I maybe hadn't considered around the effect on scanning um, I really like the idea then they talked um, we'll start to talk about heart rates and 
I don't know how applicable it is to every position, but I'm always kind of interested in what language might resonate with different players. And I certainly know fly halves that would run around at a million miles an hour. And he was talking about, you know, he wants his fly halves heart rate at 65. And then Brian came in and, and said that actually, if your scrum halves heart rate is at 200, you're having a brilliant game. And I just thought that was a really, I think that would resonate with a lot of players. How do you keep calmness? How do you keep moving around? If your fly half's nice and calm, what impact would that have on the rest of your team? And I wonder how I could use that. I also thought um, in terms of conditioning a game, could you condition certain players to not be able to move when they've got the ball and then support where they might stand to be effective and how they might get other players to work off them? So I found those things interesting. Um, There was a really cool conversation around uh, the role of scrum halves in, and getting different players to play a scrum half. So there are examples of where Sinclair came in and made a scrum half pass. I do wonder and have been thinking for the past couple of months if if actually maybe the future of the game, there's the nine role changes and actually we didn't have a, a traditional scrum half in the game. So someone put the ball into the scrum, but then they immediately become a second playmaker or they become a flanker. I wonder what that would look like and if that that would be possible. Fletch labelled the breakdown pass as a core skill that every player should be learning. Um, and that, that really made me just wonder how can that change the game? And obviously, if you've got multiple people able to pass the ball accurately, then the tempo of the game can go up. Uh, so that might be something to play around with, not right for every team, but, but possibly. Um, and then, like, finally, I just... I've heard it on a couple of other webinars there are things that spark this and I, I just love the chat they had around I think Fletch asked the question about or it might have been Rusty but it was who what did they want in their fullback because obviously England English rugby's had a number of different fullbacks over the years all with different qualities it does seem at the moment that you're either a defensive fullback or an attacking fullback there's not much of a, a hybrid in in the ones England have had o- over the last few years uh, and it was really interesting Will has said that Ian Balshaw was the best fullback he played with. Um, and if anyone remembers that year where he came onto the seat, I mean, you can't disagree. He was amazing, Christian Cullen-esque. But I think the key was that Will said he wanted a fullback who could make that outside break on the 13, so on the outside arc. And what that made me really think about was actually how often do we ask our players what qualities they want in the guys around them? So are we asking our fly half you're our best fly half, what quality do you need in in a 12? Or are we deciding that as coaches uh, to our philosophy? You know, what what qualities do you want in your nine? Does his pass need to be his exceptional quality or does he need to be able to make a, make a light, you know, make a snipe or whatever it might be? And I just think those questions around that are really interesting. And that's where I thought Will was particularly good on the webinar is that, or the balance between the two, because Will's technical detail around running lines, how to play in that position, what's going on on the field, teamed with Brian's sort of philosophical outlook on the game. Just thought it tailored really nicely. But I love those questions at the moment. When I I actually get a chance to get back coaching, definitely going to ask some players, you know, what what do you want in the guys around you? And I would hope that potentially that would then lead to maybe a bit more peer-to-peer coaching. Great. Well, if you want that quality in that player, go and help him with it. Tell him about it. Do they have those conversations? So those were a few of the sort of key things for me. There was loads of great stuff in there. But as I said, it was all over the place, bouncing around their ideas. It was a really fun 
sort of energetic conversation. So it was good. So do, uh, perhaps more for a debate rather than a, a direct question, but uh, do you think if in four or five years' time the same sort of thing was set up with, with um, Manu Tuolangi as our 13, would he have the same ideas around or same sort of um, focus and expertise, if you will, that, that Will Greenwood has? Or is Will Greenwood a product of the, the Clive Woodward um, play-by-numbers um, role of coaching what do you think well it's really interesting like it comes back to something they both said at the beginning was that actually their relative size meant they had to be thinkers about the game that was one of the first comments they both made and I'm sure that's not completely true because you know it wasn't like Will wasn't unphysical but I suppose he was a bit scrawny and like lanky in an age where people were getting bigger and bigger um, so I think that probably has a part to it I'm pretty sure Manu wouldn't consider himself lacking in size um, but you'd like to think that they would. I don't I know. What I'm trying, I, I don't what, know. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, do you do you think that the way that England were coached by Clive Woodward is significantly different to the way that England are coached by Eddie? And and does that would that will that have an impact on the players that have come out of both camps? I think in terms of if you looked at the styles of play, there's probably not an awful lot lot changed I think you'd see more more encouragement of forwards to be ball players than there was back in 2003 potentially so I don't know if that then has an effect obviously the the game has changed slightly in that the kicking game is so important so maybe that does lead you to need different skills in a fullback but I think it's more around what what role do players have in the team so I think if you asked if you asked Owen Farrell as opposed to Manu Tuolangi, he's probably the type of person that could tell you exactly what he wants in the players around him. But you're always going to have people in the team that... I don't, I don't want to go and label Manu, he's too big to say something negative about. But um, <laughs> I, I, thought I, do, it, I, do really, yeah. I do really like that idea of um, you know, asking the players what, what they're looking for around him. I think there's some, there's some real mileage in that, actually. Um, because, I, you know, guilty as charged that you pick someone in a position that you think they're going to suit. Um, so you, again, school rugby, you pick the tall boy to, to go in the second row because he's tall. Um, and you pick the, the slightly larger, slower ones to, to go in other positions and, and the fast ones go on the wing. It's, that's the way it works, isn't it? And that's, um, yeah, so I definitely think that actually asking perhaps some of the other lads. I mean, it's obviously you... heavily reliant on being in an environment where you have options of choosing players. Sometimes, yeah, as yeah, we yeah. know, sometimes rugby is about, here's the 15 people on a park, <laughs> where do we place them? I think you can make that work in your favour. I remember at Nuneaton, we had two really good scrum halves. We had a lacking in the back three, and one of the scrum halves could play wing as a second position. So we just tailored it. Whenever he was on the wing, we'd almost play with a scrum half on either side of the field. And it, you know, it was a little bit of adaption, but actually, it just meant that we could the, the the nine on the other side of the field could just then set themselves up as a playmaker, rather than having to run you know forty, fifty, sixty meters back and cross a field, which which in a lot of ways just doesn't make sense, especially when you say if you've got core skills or you've got people that can just pick up and shift the ball accurately and quickly from a breakdown why are you asking somebody to run all that way? And I, I definitely think there's, there's a load of stuff we could play with there. Um, yeah. Well, that's what they were saying was the beauty of Austin Healy in that team. Yeah. yeah. 
I did think it was really interesting. I, I, I know Brian said he said it was tongue-in-cheek about having seven playmakers. <laughs> Will said, oh, I wouldn't want them all to be playmakers. But I, I, I just think there's a bit of separation there. Like, Yes, physically, some guys aren't going to be really big boshers like Manu and, and really physical players. But I guess the best example is Nonu. You look at Nonu initially, he was just an up-and-down man. Like He just carried, he didn't pass but he expanded that skill set probably to be one of the best centers in the if not the best center in the world at the time because he could then pass but he could also you know he could also um, run and carry and, and do everything he needed to so suddenly it's a dual threat and i i can't see why you'd want to go oh i i won't get a couple of players to be decision makers and and that type of thing because they're physical well let's just let's, let's make everyone as best we can cover as many bases as possible. I thought that was a little bit defeatist. I do agree, but I think there was an element where I think I think what Will was trying to sort of describe is that, yes, you want to develop all your players to, to be playmakers and expand their skill set, but that doesn't mean from day one that they're able to do it. So mm. you don't suddenly start going to your second row, right, I want you to start making 10-meter miss passes. You go, well, look, for the next few months, just carry and we'll work on that side outside. And when you feel comfortable on it, then we go. Because of depends what environment you're working in. If you're working in an environment, a performance environment, you start asking your second row to throw massive mispasses around, it's going to potentially affect the team. Whereas it's just about, I think it's about the timing of it. Um, and context is crucial as it always is. I mean, I've had a conversation with a guy that got 70-odd caps for Ireland. And he was told, and I mean, he was a, he was a, a centre. He was told not to pass the ball because he was exceptional at you know getting game line and going forward. And you just go, well, bloody hell! Like you're just limiting. Actually, He's, he got in the end. It becomes a bit easier to defend, doesn't it? Because you know he ain't going to pass the ball. So actually, is it our responsibility as much as we want to get the best out of that individual with the skill set they have currently? As you say, we've got to be able to challenge those players to do, I think, more than one thing. Otherwise, it's, it's a real disservice. I've got a question um, off, the back of, uh, off the back of that for, for Alex. Um, I, I was lucky enough to work with Bristol ladies, as they were then, Bristol Bears, um, in the build-up to the 2010 um, Women's World Cup. And it's interesting that, that Russ said that um, Fletch talks about the breakdown pass as being a core skill. Because I remember Sophie Hemming, who was, one of the, who was England's prop at the time, um, practicing and practicing the clearing pass, which is effectively the same thing over and over again. So that's 10 years ago that she was practicing that. I wonder if, you know, Alex, what's your, um, do you think your, there's lots of girls in your, um, in your setup that already have those better perhaps core skills than some of the boys at the same age? I would say no. And I think half of that is not that they don't have the understanding. They just might not have the strength yet. Um, to make the length of pass they may require, they may require. Um, I think it's evolving, um, and I, I agree. I think it's sort of becoming a, uh, a required skill. Um, I actually one of my questions was: Is how does the game change if everyone is technically a nine? Um, and I think that as we develop uh, those skills, uh, I think you're going to see the game change. I think, especially in the women's side, I think it's kicking, um, and and in the women's game. If, if you can develop females who can kick and can develop the strength, because I have uh, young ladies who have massive boots. 
they don't understand the, the tactical side behind the technical skill yet. And so it's develop, developing that knowledge a little bit. Um, and I think the same with the, with the pass, with passing off the ground or passing at any point is that you're doing a certain pass for a tactical advantage to manipulate the, the defense. And so I think it's always that juggling act of, of refining the technique, putting it in the context to develop the skill. Um, but I'd say with, with the age group that I work at, um, I think the understanding's probably there more on the female side. They're, they're, in my experience, the females I've coached as opposed to the, the males are much more cerebral, quicker to pick it up. They just haven't developed the strength yet to necessarily do what they want to do. Yeah, I, 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 I concur with that. I completely agree. My experience with women's rugby is, is, is the same, that they, they understand it. They, they, they're more likely to try it, and they're more likely to try it if they fail the first time as well. Um, I think that's probably, yeah, that's my input. I have a question uh, related to, we're just talking about this of sort of typecasting a player. This is your role, know your role. And I know I had watched this webinar and at one point Will made the rest the the comment about just know your role and do it. And I thought people are going to jump through the camera and, and, and attack him. But my question would be, when is the right time to really push skill acquisition? So, for example, a strong runner, his, his wheelhouse is going strong, maybe a little bit of evasion, going to ground. When you start saying, okay, now you, not, you need to start looking at passing during contact. And I'm thinking of and implementing it in a game. I think it's a gradual process from my experience. I think actually I love playing around with things like player challenges before a game. So here's your challenge today. Can you... You know, can you get one offload through the contact? If you go out and set the standards 10, it's probably all going to go a bit wrong or it's, you know, again, it stretched them too far. So I think you can challenge in ways like that and build it up gradually. Um, I think you can, it's about, and getting the player on side. So sitting them down with a video and, and going, well, look, what could we add to your game that would work? What do you think about this? Um, in terms in terms of how you do it, I, I always look at, so uh, take the adult club game, for example, I'd always look at that space between 7, 7.30 as your start time as a chance to get people in early and, and develop some skills to so whatever that might look like. Um, and I think it's, you've got to get the players buy-in though first. They might, they might not want to do that depending on the level. So I talk about level five rugby, level five, level six rugby. What are those... What are those lads looking for from their experience? They might not want to give up the extra time to challenge it, or they might want to just be good at what they're doing, or they might be at a time in their career. So I think it's, you've, as with everything, you've got to bring them along on the journey. But I think there are ways you can try and do it subtly. Praise as well. You know, if they're doing something in training that they don't show in a game, praise that heavily and see then, oh, I see you do that in training an awful lot, but I haven't seen it in games. Why don't you give it a try this week? Or why don't you try it and things like that. I think there's just different tools you can use to, to move it in that direction. I think it's a really good question. Um, I think my take would be before it becomes an issue. So if you're talking about a kid, you know, maybe the kid that's, that's um, matured quicker than everybody else and, and is just bigger or stronger or faster and can run through people, you, they're not going to know what they don't know. So, 
in a year or 18 months or two seasons or whatever that might be, people are going to catch up with them and suddenly their strength is not going to be a strength and, and that success they've had is then a real, I guess it's a real downer. Suddenly they're not as impactful, they're not the superstar and I, I think framing it in the right way and scaffolding it and doing all of those things and as, as Russ said, getting that player on board but just nudging them towards thinking about a solution to what are you going to do when you come up against kids that are as big or as fast or as strong as you and starting to develop that skill set before they get to a place where they go, I'm not enjoying the game anymore because I can't just break through tackles and I don't score four tries every week and the things that they were doing beforehand. And, and I think that's a difficult sell to a player that they don't see it's become a problem. I guess you could maybe find other kids in the club if you've got a big enough club that have gone through a similar thing you know that they were that kid three or four years ago they could have a conversation but but I think it's you recognizing that this could be an issue further down the line and we need to rectify this now before before it becomes a problem that means you know they stop enjoying it or they stop being successful or they give up or something like that superb uh, right, gents, we will finish that one off there and we'll move into what are you looking forward to next week? So, uh, Shep, what's your thoughts? What's caught your eye? Um, well, they haven't released what the, uh, the webinar will be about yet, but uh, I've been following some of the Rugby Journal webinars. They've done uh, some on um, rugby media in lockdown and, and how Rugby Sevens players are coping during lockdown. So it's a good series. I'm just They don't release it until the early part of the week. So that'll be something I'll be tuning into next week. Love it. Good stuff. Russ, how about you? Yeah, I'm uh, signed up for the uh, England Rugby webinar on the breakdown with John Mitchell. I think that would be fascinating. And then my regular sort of podcast go-to at the moment is the Flying Coach with uh, Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr. I just think that's phenomenal. And uh, I'm loving Eddie Jones and Connor O'Shea as well. Just uh, the England Rugby podcast is, I think that's a really interesting listen at the moment as well. Nice. The fly, I need to get into this Flying Coach one. Everyone keeps mentioning it and I've not got Listen to it. out, mate. Yeah. Yeah, fair play. Uh, Alex, how about you? Uh, I have the UK coaching uh, webinar next week, and it's so it's coach, parent, and athlete relationships, and that's on Monday. And then I have a podcast I'm going to sort of uh, that I've sort of come across recently, and it's called Sexier Than a Squirrel. Um, it's not a rugby one; uh, it's about dog training, but it's actually got so many connections that can apply to coaching. It it really surprised me. So that's one if someone has some time to kill, I'd highly recommend. Nice, love that. Always, always keen for a non-rugby one, so that's that's positive. Uh, one I'm looking forward to is Totai Kefu, who's the Tongan head coach. So he is reviewing their World Cup campaign uh, and looking at coaching philosophy, team profile, game plan, motivation. Um, so links for all of these are going to be up in the podcast blurb. So. Um, Definitely plenty of good stuff to look up for this week. Right, I will round up the roundup. We hope you found it useful. Thank you to my three guests for their excellent insight. Links to all the content discussed will be shared in the podcast blurb. As I said, I've also added in some uh, regular podcasts that, uh, that are worth checking out. Please subscribe, like, and share. And as we ride off into the sunset, I'd like to wish you all the best. Stay safe and go